It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Frank Matthews stepped out of his brand new Cadillac Eldorado on a summer afternoon in 1969. The weather was unusually cool, but the brisk breeze was doing little to quell his rising agitation. He and one of his business partners pressed on toward the front doors of his Brooklyn apartment complex. As Matthews and his associate got into the elevator, they hardly noticed the well-built man standing next to them but he certainly noticed them. This sort of staring was hardly unusual. Black families were few and far between in this apartment complex, and Matthews and his family had been the subject of more than a few suspicious stares by their white neighbors. And admittedly, Matthews attracted attention. He was built like a football player, short and stocky. Jewelry glistened from his neck and arms, accentuating his mink coat and platform shoes. So Matthews didn't think twice as he screamed at his partner about a business deal gone wrong, threatening to shoot any man foolish enough to double-cross his business. Just a few floors up, the elevator doors opened and the other man left Matthews and his associate to talk business in peace. Though Matthews didn't know it yet, that elevator ride would prove the most costly event of his life. He had no idea that his eavesdropping neighbor was Detective Joe Kowalski, the man who would eventually topple his multi-million dollar drug business. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. This is our first episode on Frank Matthews, a narcotics trafficker who at the height of his power in the late 60s and early 70s, supplied drugs to every region of the United States. This week, we'll take a look at Matthews' rise from indigence to undisputed power atop the United States drug trade. Next week, we'll look at his downfall and sudden mysterious disappearance. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Frank Matthews wasn't supposed to be here. A part of him knew that. He was a country boy, modest and easygoing. The fast life of New York should have been too much for him. He didn't know what to expect when he had first traversed north from his home in North Carolina, but it certainly wasn't this. These days, life was one never-ending party. By 1971, Matthews sat firmly atop New York's drug game. He had worked hard to get to this position, and each night as he hopped between his favorite Harlem night spots, he reminded himself that he deserved to enjoy the fruits of his labor. And enjoy he did. Frank was rarely seen without one of his many girlfriends, all of whom he kept at different apartments he owned around the city. It was also rare to see Frank dressed in anything less than an audacious getup. He donned mink coats, leather safari suits, and platform shoes that added an extra few inches to his five-foot, nine-inch frame. Rarer still was to see him without a cigar pressed between his lips, smoke billowing from his mouth like a roaring chimney. For everything his southern upbringing had taught him about humility, the Frank Matthews of 1971 had no problem flaunting his immeasurable wealth. The precise financial scale of Matthews' empire was in fact immeasurable. But given the geographic size of his organization, operating in 21 states in every region of the United States, some estimates put the exact value somewhere in the hundreds of millions. Perhaps the most significant sign of Matthew's wealth was his general nonchalance with money. He was known to never count the money after a drug deal. It wasn't that he blindly trusted those he was working with, but that he was making so much money, being stiffed over a couple thousand dollars didn't seem worth worrying about. On more than one occasion, dealers in his network would call Frank, asking for a meeting so they could pay him back thousands of dollars they owed. They were taken aback to hear Matthews tell them to keep the money. He figured they needed it more than he did. And in most cases, he was right. But the money he did keep, Frank put to good use. He commanded a fleet of Cadillac Eldorados, which shepherded him around town in the sort of luxury usually reserved for dignitaries. He had paid for the cars in cash, a fact that was whispered about among the tenants of his upper-middle-class apartment building. But gossip didn't faze him. By 1971, Frank had accomplished a great deal. He had made himself into a legitimate drug kingpin, whose power in New York was rivaled only by the Italian mob. He had bought his family a luxury apartment in Brooklyn and would soon see construction completed on a Staten Island mansion. He'd come a long way from his hometown in North Durham, North Carolina. Frank Matthews was born February 13, 1944, in the heart of tobacco country. His neighborhood, 
in the heavily segregated east end of North Durham, has remained predominantly black since the late 1890s. The question of Frank's parentage remains murky. His father and mother are believed to be Arthur and Hazel McNeil Matthews. But when Frank was close to nine years old, his mother died, leaving him to be raised by his aunt, Marzella Steele Webb. Though few would ever dare say it to her face, rumors swirled about just how much Marzella looked like her nephew and ward, Frank Matthews. Some claim that Frank was actually Marzella's son. What was for certain was that along with her own two children, Marzella now had another mouth to feed. Luckily, she was known among the Durham community for her business savvy. Even in those days of intense segregation, Durham's black community was thriving in ways that many of its white counterparts could only aspire to. If there was a place for young Frank Matthews to learn about the business world, this was it. Though many parts of the East End remained poor, the area's Parish Street became known as the Black Wall Street. It played home to North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company, the nation's oldest and largest black-owned insurance company. It also housed Mechanics and Farmers Bank, one of the country's oldest black-owned banks. Durham was also the home of North Carolina Central University, the United States' first publicly funded historically black liberal arts college. All around Frank Matthews, his neighbors were attending college or opening up businesses. And that entrepreneurial spirit was not lost on the young boy, even if his own business plan was less than legal. Peewee, as those in Durham lovingly referred to Frank, found himself a fruitful racket before he had even turned 13. He and a couple of his friends would travel to the local farmer's exchange and steal chickens. One of the boys would creep into the chicken coop and rile up the animals, causing them to flee. The other boys would wait outside and pick up as many as they could corral. They would take their loot to the local bars and sell them for a quarter apiece, just over $2 each in today's money. But Frank's chicken coop fraud soon led to his first run-in with the law. When he was 14, a local chicken farmer learned that Frank was the ringleader of the chicken coop racket that had been costing him money for years. One day, the farmer spotted Frank at the farmer's market and confronted him. Never one to back down from a fight, Pee Wee Matthews escalated the argument by striking the farmer with a brick. After being charged with assault and battery, Frank was sent off to reformatory school for a year. When he arrived back in Durham, Frank was a changed young man, though not in the way that the court had intended. Rather than deter the young delinquent from a life of crime, Frank's stay in the reformatory seemed to only solidify his love for the criminal underworld. In 1961, 17-year-old Frank enrolled in Bull City Barber College. The program was rigorous, requiring hopeful barbers to put in 1,500 hours of work and pass a state-issued exam before they could become certified. A few months into the program, Frank was expelled after being caught stealing barber equipment from his fellow students. 
Frank's appetite for crime was growing, and it couldn't be fed living in the quiet southern comfort of Durham. So Frank set his eyes to the north. In 1962, 18-year-old Frank Matthews left the city of his youth and set out to find fame and fortune. He told friends that he was going to New York, but first he made an extended pit stop in the city of brotherly love. In Philadelphia, Frank settled into a familiar groove. He began work as a barber and ran a lottery racket on the side to make some extra cash. The energy of the big city was a nice change of pace for Frank, and for about a year, life was good. Until suddenly, it wasn't. In 1963, Frank got into trouble with some members of the Philadelphia Police Department. The exact circumstances of the disagreement are murky, but at the end of it, Frank was given a clear directive by the police. Leave Philadelphia by morning, or he might not live to see the next sunset. When we come back, we'll look at Frank's move to New York City. Now, back to the story. At the dawn of 1964, 20-year-old Frank Matthews arrived in New York City with a chip on his shoulder. Two years earlier, he had left his home in Durham, North Carolina in search of fortune and fame. But thus far, Frank's quest for a better life in the big city hadn't exactly been working out. Frank had a penchant for trouble, and he'd been forced to flee Philadelphia or risk retribution from his enemies and the local police. But Frank wasn't too torn up about it. Philadelphia was always supposed to be merely a pit stop. If he was really going to become the man he aspired to be, he would need to do it in the Big Apple, New York City. Whatever dreams Frank may have had about taking the city by storm quickly dissipated when he arrived in Brooklyn. Just as he had in Philadelphia and Durham, he took up work in a local barbershop and started running a lottery scam on the side to supplement his income. Frank was frustrated. He hadn't come to New York to live as another working stiff. He had dreams, ambitions. He was going to be the guy wearing $300 suits and driving Lincoln Town cars. And he knew he wasn't going to get there by continuing a life of haircuts and petty crime. Luckily, he already had another idea in mind. In the mid-60s, heroin was starting to decimate the New York area. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, between the years of 1969 and 1974, the population of Americans battling heroin addiction rose from 242,000 to 558,000. And on July 14, 1969, President Richard Nixon would tell Congress New York City alone has records of some 40,000 heroin addicts, and the number rises between 7,000 and 9,000 a year. The New York drug trade had long been controlled by the Italian mafia. The five families, Gambino, Lucchese, Bonanno, Genovese, and Colombo, brought the drugs into the city and oversaw its distribution all the way down to street-level dealers. The Italians hired mostly black associates for the actual street dealing. 
But Frank, despite his humble upbringing, felt he was above slinging dope on the corner. He had bigger plans. If he wanted to be more than a hired grunt, he would need to start his own operation and become an independent distributor. And to do that, he needed cash. Frank couldn't very well go to the bank and take out a loan to start his drug business. So instead, he took his pitch directly to the Italian mafia. It sounds counterintuitive to approach the mob for a loan to start a business that directly competes with the mob's own interests. But Frank hoped it would lead to a partnership. If they would supply him with drugs on credit, he could use those startup resources to get his own distribution business rolling. But the mob didn't just hand out loans to anyone who asked. First, you had to make the connections to get a meeting with one of the bosses in the first place. Frank had barely arrived in the city, and without any connections, money, or influence, getting the mafia's ear was no easy task. Then came the matter of proving himself. The mob required evidence that a potential distributor could meet their strict terms. 30% down on each drug shipment, paid in cash upon delivery. Failure to pay back the bank was one thing. Failure to pay back the mob was something else entirely. If things went south, Frank would be in serious trouble but he knew he'd need to take a risk if he wanted any reward. The exact circumstances are unclear, but thanks to his relentlessness and resourcefulness, in 1965, Matthews managed to get a meeting with the representatives of not just one crime family, but two. The godfather of the Bonanno family came first, then came the Gambinos. Frank Matthews had prepared vigorously for these meetings. He wore his nicest suit and shined his shoes until they sparkled. He practiced his pitch until it was perfect. He knew he would have a handicap the moment he walked in the room. Not only was he inexperienced and ill-connected, but his skin was a few shades darker than the mobsters would expect. When the time came to sell his idea to two of the most powerful mob bosses in the country, Frank didn't miss a beat. His plan was clear. His charisma shined through. He may not have had much experience, but he was more than just a petty criminal. He urged the two Dons that partnering with an intrepid young black man like himself was an opportunity not to be missed. Unfortunately, the Italians didn't share Frank's zeal. Both the Gambinos and Bananos rejected his pitch. And just like that, Frank Matthews was back to the drawing board. If he wanted to start a drug enterprise, he would have to do it himself. But he was undeterred. He had set a goal for himself. And if achieving it meant open revolt against the mob, then Frank was more than ready for war. Though he may not have convinced the Italians, there were some in the city who had taken notice of Frank's business sense. Raymond Marquez, one of the biggest illegal gambling brokers in all of New York City, had taken a liking to the ambitious young man. Spanish Raymond, as he was known on the streets, became as close to a mentor as Frank Matthews ever had. It's believed that, through Marquez, Frank met his first drug connection, 
Rolando Gonzalez Nunez. Gonzalez was a Cuban drug trafficker who had been importing both heroin and cocaine ever since he left his home country a few years ago. Frank had little in common with the man beyond a thirst for riches, but if Spanish Raymond trusted Gonzalez, Frank trusted him too. By 1968, Frank Matthews was on his way to becoming the city's biggest drug dealer. Exactly how he rose through the drug world's ranks in just three years remains something of a mystery. But what we do know is that from the start, Frank was unlike any trafficker the city had ever seen. In the years following the Second World War, the vast majority of the country's heroin came by way of a European drug trafficking syndicate known as the French Connection. The Italian mafia was deeply ingrained within the French Connection, meaning that if you weren't connected to a mob family, reliable drug sources were difficult to come by. Much of Frank's immediate growth came from the fact that, through Rolando Gonzalez Nunez, he had met another significant drug connection from Venezuela. While most of New York's other distributors had no choice but to work under the Italians, Frank had commissioned a major importing connection completely outside of the Mafia's influence. He now controlled as powerful a point of leverage as anyone in the New York underworld. But all the connections in the world would have been for naught without Frank's incredible business acumen. It was also his organizational skills and uncanny ability to forge relationships with other gangsters that set him apart from his contemporaries early on. He oozed charisma, forging unparalleled loyalty among his workers. Frank hadn't yet reached his 30th birthday, but by 1968, he was cutting, packaging, and dealing cocaine and heroin in close to every major East Coast city. He already had connections in North Carolina, Florida, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and other major cities. The specific details of his meteoric rise have been lost to history, but we do know how things ran once his full operation was in place. After the product was imported, it was processed at two Brooklyn-based drug mills, nicknamed the Ponderosa and the OK Corral. Each day, 40 or so workers boarded buses to the mills where they would be paid about $100 a day to bag drugs. That's the equivalent of about $740 today. The workers were required to wear masks to prevent them from inhaling any of the cocaine they were cutting. Once the drugs were packaged, they were shipped out to street-level dealers throughout the East Coast. By delivering directly from the processing labs to the dealers, Frank was eliminating the middleman and increasing his own profits on every transaction. Soon, Frank was handling multi-ton drug shipments to at least 21 different states. What had started as an East Coast operation began extending into Midwest markets like Chicago and St. Louis. Business was so good, it wasn't uncommon for Frank to earn a quarter of a million dollars in cash from a single shipment, roughly the equivalent of over $1.8 million today. Frank's business operated like a McDonald's or a Burger King. 
setting up franchises along street corners all across the East Coast and hiring only highly qualified lieutenants to operate them as managers. His men in each city handled all the work, and Frank sat back and watched the money grow. And it grew. By the summer of 1969, Frank Matthews sat firmly atop the New York drug game. At just 25 years old, he was making more money from drug sales than either of the mob families that had once rejected him. And as Frank's drug empire continued to grow, so did his family. By 1968, Frank and his longtime girlfriend, Barbara Hinton, had three sons together. Little is known about Frank's home life beyond Barbara's name and the existence of their sons. This was intentional on Frank's part. He knew the dangers of the world he operated in, and even though he tried to avoid violence himself, he knew there were people who might want to hurt him by going after his family. That's partially why, in the summer of 1968, Frank moved his young family into an apartment at 130 Clarkson Avenue in a quiet, middle-class Brooklyn neighborhood. When asked what he did for a living by his almost uniformly white neighbors, Frank told them he was in real estate. It was only a half lie. Frank did own real estate all throughout the city, including drug dens, stash houses, and discreet apartments for his many romantic affairs. But few could reasonably believe Frank's claim that he was a legitimate businessman. It wasn't just his ostentatious outfits, including mink coats, leopard suits, and platform shoes. Nor was it the fleet of expensive cars he commanded at his beck and call. Instead, it was the constant visitors, arriving outside the building at all hours of the day and night, only to slip into Frank's apartment and leave just as quickly as they'd come. Still, Frank was unworried about a few suspicious neighbors. He had moved to this sleepy Brooklyn neighborhood because he wanted to feel safe when he came home every night. As far as he was concerned, judgmental whispers were less of a hazard than flying bullets. But as he would soon discover, sometimes the enemy you know is far less dangerous than the one you don't. As Matthews and a business associate stepped into the elevator one evening, neither paid much attention to the well-built man standing to their side but the man was most certainly watching them. His name was Joe Kowalski. He was an NYPD detective who lived in the same building. He had heard the gossip around the building's most frequently visited tenant, but this was Joe's first time seeing Frank Matthews in person, and he was unimpressed. Frank didn't know it but he had just fanned the suspicions of a man who had the power to rip away everything he'd built. Coming up, we'll learn how Joe Kowalski's investigation into Frank Matthews put him firmly within the crosshairs of the police. Now back to the story. By 1971, Frank Matthews was perhaps one of the most important drug traffickers in the United States. His organization had grown to bring in hundreds of millions of dollars each year. And at 27 years old, Frank had grown into something far different from the young man who had arrived in New York seven years earlier. Frank's over-the-top style and charismatic demeanor made him a legend in the New York underworld. 
He even served as inspiration for the character of Tommy Gibbs, a tough guy who rises from the streets to become a crime kingpin in the 1973 film Black Caesar. By now, Frank had started to put much of his drug earnings to use at casinos. He became a regular in Las Vegas, earning a reputation among the workers as a great tipper. Frank was a heavy gambler and not a particularly successful one, often losing as much as $190,000 in a single night, roughly the equivalent of $1.2 million today. But it wasn't all fun and games when he came to Vegas. Years later, investigators came to believe that Frank's trips to Sin City were part of an effort to launder money through some of his Las Vegas contacts. By this point in his career, Frank had connections not only in New York and Las Vegas, but in nearly every city in the country. Frank was a king, but he realized that if he brought all his contacts together, he could create something far bigger and more powerful than his own empire. In October of 1971, Frank Matthews called a meeting in Atlanta, a summit for all the most powerful black and Latino drug dealers in the country. It had been years since Frank had been rejected by the Italian mafia, but a part of him still harbored a bitterness toward them. And now that he had money and power, Frank had a plan to put the Italians out of business for good. While Frank had long been operating independently from the mafia, many other distributors were still dependent on the Italians' heroin and cocaine supply. At the Atlanta summit, Frank proposed a radical alternative. He wanted to form a heroin smuggling network that could operate entirely outside of the control of the mob. The group was more than receptive. They'd long been relegated to the role of middle management as their Italian partners reaped the profits. By the end of the meeting, a plan was in place. The group, led by Frank, would build up their own independent relationship with the Corsicans, the group that ran the French Connection. The French Connection operated out of Marseille, one of the busiest ports in the Western Mediterranean. In the 60s, the United States was focused on combating Soviet influence in France, so focused that they hardly noticed as it became the heroin capital of the Western world. One 1960 report stated that while narcotics agents in Marseille were seizing a total of around 200 pounds of heroin every year, that same amount was being smuggled into the port for distribution every other week by the Corsicans. The Italians had always been the French Connection's primary partner in the U.S. Until this point, Frank had somehow managed to avoid war with the Italian mob families he'd defied. Despite his growing business, they saw him as little more than a nuisance. But any effort to grow closer with the Corsicans would mean coming into direct competition with the mob. The two groups were on a definite collision course. But Frank was ready for war. As he left the Atlanta meeting, Frank had every reason to feel accomplished. He had single-handedly united drug operations from all across the country, and he had moved one step closer to pushing the powerful Italian mob out of the drug trade. To anyone who had attended, the message was clear. 
Frank Matthews was now the most powerful non-Italian gangster in the country. But it wasn't only his fellow drug traffickers who had reached that conclusion. The Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, the predecessor of the modern-day DEA, had caught wind of Frank's meeting of the mines. They had traveled to Atlanta and run the license plates of the attendees, and they discovered Frank had brought together a regular who's who of black and Latino organized crime. For the first time since entering the drug game a few short years ago, Frank Matthews had found his way into the police's crosshairs. The fact that he was able to stay under the radar for as long as he did is impressive, given his massive success. But now, he'd have to be twice as careful if he wanted to keep his empire intact. Despite this complication, Frank's new relationship with the Corsicans was going swimmingly. One shipment, rumored to have been worth a mind-boggling $400 million, took an extreme level of planning. The Corsicans packed heroin into World War II-era limpet mines and transported them across the Atlantic to Frank's contact in Venezuela. Once the mines reached Venezuela, they were dumped in a local harbor, then retrieved by a team of divers that Frank had hired for the occasion. The operation was a massive success, and it helped cement Frank's relationship with the Corsicans as a man who would go to great lengths to get the job done. But back at home, Frank was in trouble. On top of the Bureau of Narcotics investigation, Detective Joe Kowalski had been keeping an eye on Frank ever since their chance run-in on the elevator, completely ignorant of the ongoing work his federal counterparts were doing. The first thing Kowalski noticed was that Frank was always flush with money, despite never seeming to leave his apartment for work. He began watching the parking lot, jotting down the license plates of every one of Frank's visitors. Kowalski noticed that many of Frank's visitors arrived with brown paper bags of what appeared to be cash. Occasionally, he would peer out his window and see Frank's workers stationed around the building, something Kowalski had picked up during his years on the force as a sign that a drug buy was going down. When Kowalski began investigating Frank Matthews' background, he was surprised to discover that neither Matthews nor his wife Barbara had a criminal record. Apparently, Matthews' brief run-in with the law in Durham had been expunged because he was a minor. But Kowalski struck gold when he began running the license plates of Frank's visitors through the police database. Many of the plates were registered to known and suspected drug traffickers from all over the East Coast. Kowalski was now sure that he was living in the same building as one of New York's preeminent drug dealers. Next, Kowalski looked into Frank's phone records. He discovered that Frank was in constant contact with numerous people who the Bureau of Narcotics had identified as major drug violators. Finally, after months of investigating, Joe Kowalski submitted a report to his supervisors in the NYPD in late 1971. The report insisted Frank was extremely dangerous and implored the NYPD to get him off the streets. 
Kowalski's report was met with mild enthusiasm from his superiors. They commended him for his efforts, but they ultimately told Kowalski that the case was beyond their scope. Instead, it would have to be given to the New York Joint Drug Task Force. The task force had been specially formed to address the state's narcotics problems. As soon as the NYPD referred the case to the task force, Frank's fall from grace became imminent. As 1971 drew to a close, Frank Matthews was focused on construction for his dream house, a custom-built mansion on Staten Island. But a full team of New York's finest were focused on making sure he never got the chance to step inside. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we explore Frank Matthews' fall from grace and mysterious disappearance. For more information on Matthews, amongst the many sources we used, we found Black Caesar by Ron Chepsik extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Kingpins was written by Daniel Ocho and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.